So it's a pleasure to be here uh, and to share the stage with um, two fantastic social historians. My book on the stump is a very different kind of work than those you've heard about so far. It's not a work of social history, it's a work of political history. And what I do in that book is trace the rise of the campaign speech, or what Americans call the stump speech, uh, as a political form. And I trace its, uh, its first naming, uh, its uh, contra- controversial emergence in the first decades of the 19th century in the United States, and then I trace its increasing acceptance and its diffusion in the liberal democracies of Great Britain and Australia. Specifically, what I do in the book is try and understand exactly when people began to, uh, candidates for office began to uh, make speeches uh, arguing that they should be elected. I try and explore why they did so. I try and look at how they did so. That is, what were the specific kinds of oratorical styles and methods that they adopted. I look at how contemporaries interpreted uh, these processes. And over the book, I try and look at how and why what was first uh, a quite fringe and controversial kind of uh, political action came eventually to be seen uh, as acceptable and as uh, an important feature of liberal democracy. And more broadly, I try and use the story of the campaign speech as a kind of a a window into um, democratic history more broadly. So what drew me to the topic? Uh, I have one kind of more sophisticated answer that I would be um, imparting if I was trying to you know, win election to um, <laughs> a, a kind of learned academy, and I have a, a franker kind of answer. So I'll give you my more uh, would-be sophisticated uh, version um, first. So that's uh, the first reason, I suppose, is historical comparison. I'm conscious that we live in a moment where uh, there's a great deal of disillusionment with contemporary democracy and contemporary election campaigns. Um, And so I was interested in looking backwards to see whether the apparent disillusionment with um, the contemporary election campaign was was present in earlier periods or whether uh, it's genuinely new. I was also concerned as a political historian to try and challenge aspects of my sub-discipline of political history. In particular, I wanted to challenge and enliven it in a number of ways. First off, I'm conscious that much political history is written as the history of organisations or of great figures, usually great men, in inverted commas. So I wanted to write a history that was actually a history of action, of what people did, rather than of organisations or great figures. Uh, I wanted to widen the sources that the political historian used, not just the newspaper and Hansard, uh, but novels, uh, paintings, plays, uh, poetry, uh, songs and pamphlets that um, describe um, and capture the stump oration. Uh, And I wanted to look beyond a particular national story to um, try and build in comparisons between different nation states and different polities, but also to explore the entanglement and the mutual influence uh, between Great Britain, Australia uh, and the United States. So that's my would-be sophisticated answer. Um, My franker answer is really an example of what um, Christina was calling uh, archival gold. It was a surprising discovery. Mm. So in, um, uh, I guess about nine years ago now, I was researching aspects of the history of social movements in the 19th century, and I came across uh, an episode that seemed to me uh, fascinating uh, and one I'd never heard of. That was the story of Charles Gavin Duffy's uh, electioneering tour in Victoria in 1871. 
Uh, many of you would know Charles Gavin Duffy as one of the leaders of the Young Ireland movement who came to Australia in the 1850s and became an important figure in Liberal politics uh, in Victoria for decades afterwards. He was Premier briefly in 1871, and in 1871 he broke with um, then uh, conventions of politics in Victoria and in Australia. He conducted an electioneering tour where he went across 12 uh, or so different places in rural and regional uh, Victoria. He would be greeted by crowds on horseback, sometimes as many as 200 local residents. Uh, they would have a banquet they would have a series of speeches in which both men and women were present. It got a lot of attention, this electioneering tour, but it also, more interestingly for me, provoked great controversy. So um, uh, Duffy was explicitly criticised as endangering the culture of British parliamentary government. It was said that he did so because um, he was, was showing uh, uh, a desire for self-promotion, when British parliamentary government should be about public service, not about uh, the, the advancement of the self. It was said that he was threatening the status um, of the local member of parliament because you should only be... If you're in parliament, you were there to represent your constituents, so what you, what should you, why would you go outside of your constituency to make speeches in other places? Uh, and it was suggested that he was threatening the supremacy of parliament by trying to create a, a direct connection between uh, the, himself as the leader and the people, um, that is, the white men uh, who were voting in elections. So I was fascinated by this episode, uh, by the criticism, and in particular the language of the criticism, which accused uh, Duffy of, of importing uh, American methods of stump oratory. And that language of stump oratory and the stump orator and the criticism of Duffy as a stump orator um, surprised me um, and provoked me to try and um, understand more. So I began to, to, to consider, well, was this really an American method? Um, was it really so novel? Uh, was it, uh, if it was controversial in Victoria in 1871, was it also controversial in the United States and in Britain? Uh, and if so, why? And if it was so controversial, why were politicians beginning to take up this tool, um, and of course I knew that eventually it would become a, a norm of electioneering. So why and how had that happened? So those are the questions that drove me um, to begin to research this book with a very long uh, subtitle uh, that, that, that looks across the United States, Britain and Australia. What did I find? Uh, very briefly, um, I should say that the book in a way tries to reconstruct uh, and re, uh, recapture that the mood uh, and the culture of that political world, rather than simply being a kind of a disciplined argument. But to the extent that I, I make an argument, I suppose I found a number of things. The first of those is that there was no golden age. So campaign oratory was always controversial. Observers persistently bemoaned its narrowness, its self-aggrandisement, its exploitation of prejudice and its repetitiveness. Uh, and in fact, um, some of the most famous uh, moments in electioneering history, like the, uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, were criticised at the time on precisely those grounds, even though now they're celebrated as a high point of democracy that our contemporary um, polity fails to live up to. The second uh, important thing I found was, was the context. This form of uh, stump speaking, this form of campaigning, was closely uh, attuned to a dynamic of what we might call limited democratisation. So it was developed in polities that were characterised by continuing gender and racial exclusion, 
but were marked by an increasing openness uh, to the political possibilities and involvement of white working-class men. So it was a form of oratory at first that rested strongly on the performance of male authority, male command, masculinity uh, at the rostrum. Third thing um, that I found was, I guess, the principle of competition and creativity. So the pioneers of stump oratory were aware that they would be criticised for breaking with convention, but they braved such criticisms because they felt that the stump, that stump oratory worked, um, but more importantly, they regarded their opponents often as equally ruthless and as morally compromised, and their cause as so noble that they could afford to break with convention and to cop the criticism that they would get. They often drew upon forms of oratory that were used in other non-political contexts. So they drew upon religious oratory, uh, legal oratory, uh, and also uh, a tradition of what's been called platform oratory, of uh, radical, um, uh, radical figures who were outside of the parliamentary sphere. The final uh, thing uh, that I found that might be worth relating is what I've called the principle of ambiguity and openness. So stump oratory was never simply good or bad, it, it enlarged the public sphere, it encouraged male participation, and it generated a genuine passion for self-government. But the language that was used and the arguments put also fostered division and antagonism, as much as consensus and community. And the passions that were so stimulated were deployed for ill as well as good. Over its long history, it's attracted much justified criticism but it's also been embraced as a necessary feature of any system of self-rule. In the history of stump oratory, therefore, I think one uh, therefore observes the ambiguity of democracy itself. By its nature, democracy is an open political system and an incomplete political project. Such an openness uh, can be a cause of trepidation, but it's also an invitation to involvement. So I tried in this book to recapture and to express the energies and the opportunities of a political system that was based on the promise of self-rule, and I hoped thereby, in a small way, to help inspire its creative enlargement today. <laughs>